Part 2 of Book 3, Chapter 19 of These Twain by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book 3, Chapter 19, Part 2. 4. At two o'clock in the afternoon of Auntie Hamp's funeral, a procession consisting of the following people moved out of the small, stuffy dining room of her house across the lobby into the drawing room. The Reverend Christian Flowerdew, Reverend Guy Cliff, Second Minister, the aged Reverend Josiah Higginbottom, Supernumerary Minister, the Chapel and the Circuit Stewards, the Doctor, Edwin, Maggie, Clara, Bert and young Clara, being respectively the eldest nephew and the eldest niece of the deceased, and finally Albert Benbow. Albert came last because he had constituted himself the Marshal of the Ceremonies. In the drawing-room, the coffin, with its hideous brass plate and handles, lay upon two chairs and was covered with white wreaths. At the head of the coffin was placed a small table with a white cloth. On the cloth, a large inlaid box, in which Auntie Hamps had kept odd photographs, and on the box, a black book. The drawn blinds created a beautiful soft silvery gloom which solemnised everything and made even the clumsy carving on the coffin seem like the finest antique work. Three ministers ranged themselves round the small table. The others stood in irregular horseshoe about the coffin, nervous, constrained, and in dread of catching each other's glances. Mr Higginbottom, by virtue of his age, began to read the service, and the Auntie Hamps became she, her, and our sister, nameless. In the dining-room she had been the paragon of all excellences. In the drawing-room, packed securely and neatly in the coffin, she was a sinner snatched from the consequences of sin by a miracle of divine sacrifice. The interment thus commenced was the result of a compromise between two schools of funebrial manners sharply divergent. Edwin, immediately after the demise, had become aware of influences far stronger than those which had shaped the already half-forgotten interment of old Darius Clayhanger into a form repugnant to him. Both Albert and Clara, but especially Albert, had assumed an elaborate funeral, with a choral service at the Wesleyan Chapel, numerous guests, a superb procession, and a substantial and costly meal in the drawing-room to conclude. Edwin had at once, and somewhat domineeringly, decided no guests whatever outside the family, no service at the chapel, every rite reduced to its simplest. When asked why, he had no logical answer. He soon saw that it would be impossible not to invite a minister and the doctor. He yielded, intimidated by the sacredness of custom. Then, not only the Wesleyan chapel, but its Sunday school sent dignified emissaries, who so little expected a no to their honorific suggestions, that the no was unuttered and unutterable. Certain other invitations were agreed upon. The Sunday school announced that it would walk, and it prepared to walk. All the emissaries spoke of Auntie Hamps as a saint. They all averred with restrained passion that her death was an absolutely irreparable loss to the circuit, and their apparent conviction was such that Edwin's whole estimate of Auntie Hamps and of mankind was momentarily shaken. Was it conceivable that none of these respectable people had arrived at the truth concerning Auntie Hamps? Had she deceived them all, or were they simply rewarding her in memory for her ceaseless efforts on behalf of the safety of society? Edwin stood like a rock against a service in the Wesleyan Chapel. Clara cunningly pointed out to him that the Wesleyan Chapel would be heated for the occasion, whereas the chapel at the cemetery, where scores of persons had caught their deaths in the few years of its existence, 
was never heated. His reply showed genius. He would have the service at the house itself. The decision of the chief mourner might be regretted, and was regretted, but none could impugn its correctitude, nor its social distinction. Some said approvingly that it was just like Edwin. Thenceforward the arrangements went more smoothly, the only serious difficulty being about the route to the cemetery. Edwin was met by saying that the last journey must be the longest, which meant that the cortege must go up to St Luke's Square and along the marketplace past the town hall and the shambles, encountering the largest number of sightseers, instead of taking the nearest way along Wedgwood Street. Edwin chose Wedgwood Street. In the discussions, Maggie was neutral, thus losing part of the very little prestige which she possessed. Clara and Albert considered Edwin to be excessively high-handed, but they were remarkably moderate in criticism, for the reason that no will had been found. Maggie and Clara had searched the most secret places of the house for a will, in vain. All that they had found was a brass and copper paper knife wrapped in tissue paper and labelled, For Edwin, with Auntie's love, and a set of tortoiseshell combs equally wrapped in tissue paper and labelled, For Maggie, with Auntie's love. Nought for Clara, nought for the chicks. Albert, who did all the running about, had been to see Mr Julian Piddock, the Wesleyan solicitor, who had a pew at the back of the chapel and was famous for invariably arriving at morning service half an hour late. Mr Piddock knew of near will. Albert had also been to the bank, that is to say, the bank, at the top of St Luke's Square, whose former manager had been a buttress of Wesleyanism. The new manager... After nearly eight years, he was still called the new manager, because the previous manager, Old Lovett, had been in control for nearly thirty years. Mr Breeze was ill upstairs on the residential floor with one of his periodic attacks of boils. The cashier, however, had told Albert that certain securities, but no testament, were deposited at the bank. He had offered to produce the securities, but only to Edwin as the nearest relative. Albert had then secretly looked up the pages entitled intestates estates in Whitaker's almanac and had discovered that whereas auntie hamps being intestate her personal property would be divided equally between edwin maggie and clara her real property would go entirely to edwin edwin also had secretly looked up to the same pages this gross injustice nearly turned albert from a tory into a land laws reformer it accounted for the comparative submissiveness of Clara and Albert before Edwin's arrogance as the arbiter of funerals. They hoped that, if he was humoured, he might forego his rights. They could not credit, and Edwin maliciously did not tell them, that no matter what they did, he was incapable of insisting on such rights. While the ministers succeeded each other in the conduct of the service, each after his different manner, Edwin scrutinised the coffin and the wreaths, and the cards inscribed with mournful ecstatic affection that nestled among the flowers and the faces of the audience and his thought was this will soon be over now beneath his gloomy and wearied expression he was unhappy but rather hopeful and buoyant looking forward to approaching felicity his reflections upon the career of auntie hamps were kind and utterly uncritical he wondered what her spirit was doing in that moment the mystery ennobled his mind Yet he wondered also whether the ministers believed all they were saying, why the superintendent minister read so well and prayed with such a lack of distinction, how much the wreaths cost, whether the Sunday school deputation had silently arrived in the street, and why men in overcoats and hatless 
looked so grotesque in a room. And why, where men and women were assembled on a formal occasion, the women always clung together. Probing his left-hand pocket, he felt a letter. He had received it that morning from Hilda. George was progressing very well, and Charlie Orgreave had actually brought the oculist with his apparatus to see him at Charlie's house. Charlie would always do impossibilities for Hilda. It was Charlie who had once saved George's life, so Hilda was convinced. The oculist had said that George's vision was normal and that he must not wear glasses, but that on account of a slight weakness he ought to wear a shade at night in rooms which were lighted from the top. In a few days Hilda and George would return. Edwin anticipated their arrival with an impatience almost gleeful, so anxious was he to begin the new life with Hilda. Her letters had steadily excited him. He pictured the intimacies of their reunion. He saw her ideally. His mind rose to the finest manifestations of her individuality, and the inconveniences of that individuality grew negligible. Withal, he was relieved that George's illness had kept her out of Bursley during the illness, death and burial of Auntie Hamps. Had she been there, he would have had three persons to manage instead of two, and he could not have asserted himself with the same freedom. And then there was the sound of sobbing outside the door. Minnie, sharing humbly but obstinately in the service according to her station, had broken down in irrational grief at the funeral of the woman whose dying words amounted to an order for her execution. Edwin, though touched, could have smiled, and he felt abashed before the lofty and incomprehensible marvels of human nature. Several outraged bent heads twisted round in the direction of the door, but the minister intrepidly continued with the final prayer. Maggie slipped out, the door closed, and the sound of sobbing receded. After the benediction, Albert resumed full activity, while the remainder of the company stared and cleared their throats without exchanging a word. The news that the hearse and coaches had not arrived helped them to talk a little. The fault was not that of the undertaker, but Edwin's. The service had finished too soon, because in response to Mr. Flowerdew's official question, How much time do you give me? he had replied, Oh, a quarter of an hour, whereas Albert, the organiser, had calculated upon half an hour. The representatives of the Sunday school were already lined up on the pavement and on the opposite pavement, and in the roadway were knots of ragged, callously inquisitive spectators. Vehicles could at length be described on the brow of Church Street. They descended the slope in haste. The four mutes nipped down with agility from the hammercloths, hung their greasy top hats on the ornamental spikes of the hearse, and sneaked grimly into the house. In a second the flowers were shifted from the coffin, and with startling accomplished swiftness the coffin was darted out of the room without its fraudulent brass handles even being touched, and down the steps into the hearse, and the flowers replaced. The one hitch was due to Edwin attempting to get into the first coach instead of waiting for the last one. Albert, putting on his new black gloves, checked him. The ministers and the doctor had to go first, the chapel officials next, and the chief mourners, Edwin, Albert and Bert, had the third coach. The women stayed behind at the door, frowning at the murmurous crowd of shabby idlers. Albert gave a supreme glance at the vehicles and the walkers, made a signal, and joined Edwin and Bert in the last coach, buttoning his left-hand glove. Edwin would only hold his gloves in his hand. The cortege moved. Rain was threatening, and the street was muddy. At the cemetery it was raining, 
and the walkers made a string of glistening umbrellas. Only the paid mutes had no umbrellas. Near the gates, under an umbrella, stood a man with a protruding chin and a wiry grey moustache. He came straight to Ebbin and shook hands. It was Mr Breeze, the bank manager. His neck, enveloped in a white muffler, showed a large excrescence behind, and he kept his head very carefully in one position. He said in his defiant voice, I only had the news this morning, and I felt that I should pay the last tribute of respect to the deceased. I had known her in business and privately for many years. His greeting of Albert was extremely reserved, and Albert showed him a meek face. Albert's overdraft impaired the cordiality of their relations. "'Sorry to hear that you've got your old complaint,' said Edwin, astounded at this act of presence by the terrible bank manager. Vehicles by some municipal caprice were forbidden to enter the cemetery, and in the rain between the stone-perpetuated great names of the town's history, the Boltons, the Lawsons, the Blackshaws, the Beardmores, the Dunns, the Longsons, the Humes, the Suttons, the Greens, the Gardeners, the Calverts, the Dawsons, the Brindleys, the Baineses, and the Woods. The long procession, preceded by Auntie Habs, tramped for a third of a mile along an asphalted path winding past the chapel to the graveside. And on the way, Mr Breeze, between Edwin and Albert, with Bert a yard to the rear, talked about boils, and Edwin said yes and no, and Albert said nothing. And at the graveside, the three ministers removed their flat round hats and put on skull caps while skilfully holding their umbrellas aloft. And while Mr. Flowerdew was reading from a little book in the midst of the large, encircling, bareheaded crowd with umbrellas, and the gravedigger, with absolute precision, accompanied his words with three castings of earth into the hollow of the grave, Edwin scanned an adjoining tombstone which marked the family vault of Isaac Plant, a renowned citizen. He read, chased in gilt letters on the Aberdeen granite, the following lines. Sacred to the memory of Adelaine Susan, wife of Isaac Plant, died 27th of June 1886, aged 47 years. And of Mary, wife of Isaac Plant, died 11th December 1890, aged 33 years. And of Effie Harriet, wife of Isaac Plant, died 9th of December 1893, aged 27 years. The flower fadeth. And of Isaac Plant, died 9th of February 1894, aged 79 years. I know that my Redeemer liveth. And the passionate career of the aged and always respectable Rip seemed to Edwin to have been a wondrous thing. The love of life was in Isaac Plant. He had risen above death again and again. After having detested him, Edwin now liked him on the tombstone. And even in that hilly and bleak burial ground, with melancholy sepulchral parties and white wind-blown surplices dotted about the sodden slopes, and the stiff, antipathetic multitude around the pit which held anti-hamps, and the terrible, seared, harsh, grey and brown industrial landscape of the great smoking amphitheatre below. Edwin felt happy in the sensation of being alive and of having to contend with circumstance. He was inspired by the legend of Isaac Plant and of Auntie Hamps, who in very different ways had intensely lived. And he thought in the same mood of Tertius Ingpen, who was now understood to be past hope. If he died, well, he also had intensely lived. And he thought too of Hilda, whose terrific vitality of emotion had caused him such hours of apprehension and exasperation. He exulted in all those hours. It seemed almost a pity 
that by reason of his newfound understanding of Hilda, such hours would not recur. His heart flew impatiently forward into the future, to take up existence with her again. When the ministers pocketed their skull-caps and resumed their hats, everybody except Edwin appeared to feel relief in turning away from the grave. Faces brightened, footsteps were more alert. In the drawing-room Edwin had thought, it will soon be over, and every face near him was saying, it is over. But now that it was over, Edwin had a pang of depression at the eagerness with which all the mourners abandoned Auntie Hamps to her strange and desolate grave amid the sinister population of corpses. He lingered, glancing about. Mr. Breeze also lingered, and then in his downright manner squarely approached Edwin. "'I'll walk down with you to the gates,' said he. "'Yes,' said Edwin. Mr. Breeze moved his head round with care. Their umbrellas touched. In front of them the broken units of a procession tramped in disorder, chatting. "'I've got that will for you,' said Mr. Breeze in a confidential tone. "'What will?' "'Mrs. Hamps.' "'But your cashier said there was no will at your place.' "'My cashier doesn't know everything,' remarked Mr. Breeze. And in his voice was the satisfied grimness of a true native of the district, and a longshore man. "'Mrs. Hamps deposited her will with me as much as a friend as anything else. The fact is, I had it in my private safe. I should have called with it this morning, but I knew that you'd be busy, and what more I can't go paying calls of a morning. Here it is.' Mr. Breeze drew an endorsed foolscap envelope from the breast pocket of his overcoat, and handed it to Edwin. "'Thanks,' said Edwin very curtly. He could be as native as any native. But beneath the careful imperturbability of his demeanour, he was not unagitated. "'I've got a receipt for you to sign,' said Mr. Breeze. "'It slipped into the envelope. Here's an ink-pencil.' Edwin comprehended that he must stand still in the rain and sign a receipt for the will as best as he could under an umbrella. He complied. Mr. Breeze said no more. "'Good-bye, Mr. Breeze,' said Edwin at the gates. "'Good day to you, Mr. Clayhanger.' The coaches trotted down the first part of the hill into Bursley, but as soon as the road became a street, with observant houses on either side, the pace was reduced to a proper solemnity. Edwin was amused and even uplifted by the thought of the will in his pocket. His own curiosity concerning it diverted him. He anticipated complications with a light heart. To Albert he said nothing on the subject, which somehow he could not bring himself to force bluntly into the conversation. Albert talked about his misfortunes at the works, including the last straw, the engine accident, and all the time he was vaguely indicating reasons, the presence of Bert in the carriage necessitated reticence, for his default in the interest paying to Maggie. At intervals he gave out that he was expecting much from Bert, who at the new year was to leave school for the works, and Bert, taciturn behind his spectacles, had to seem loyal, earnest, and promising. As they approached the Klaus Hospital, Edwin saw a nurse in a bonnet, white bow and fluent blue robe, emerging from the shrubbery and putting up an umbrella. She looked delightful, at once modest and piquant, until he saw that she was the night nurse, and even then she still looked delightful. He thought, I've no idea she could look like that, and began to admit to himself that perhaps in his encounters with her in the obscurity of the night he had not envisaged the whole of her personality. Involuntarily he leaned forward. Her eyes were scintillant and active, and they caught his. He saluted. She bowed, 
with a most inviting, challenging and human smile. "'There's Nurse Faulkner,' he exclaimed to Albert. "'I must just ask her how Ingpen is. I haven't heard today.' He made as if to lean out of the window. "'But you can't stop the procession,' Albert protested in horror, unable to conceive such an enormity. "'I'll just slip out,' said Ingpen guiltily. He spoke to the coachman, and the coach halted. In an instant he was on the pavement. "'Drive on,' instructed the coachman, and to the outraged Albert. "'I'll walk down.' Nurse Faulkner, apparently flattered by the proof of her attractiveness, stopped and smiled upon the visitor. She had a letter in one hand. "'Good afternoon, nurse.' "'Good afternoon, Mr. Clayhanger. I'm just going out for my morning walk before breakfast,' said she. She had dimples. These dimples quite ignored Edwin's mourning and the fact that he had quitted a funeral in order to speak to her. "'How is Mr. Ingpen today?' Edwin asked. He could read on the envelope in her hands the words, "'The Rev.' She grew serious, and she said in a low, cheerful tone, "'I think he's going on pretty well.' Edwin was startled. "'Do you mean he's getting better?' "'Slowly. He's taking food more easily. He was undoubtedly better this morning.' I haven't seen him since, of course. But the matron seemed to think... He stopped, for the dimples began to reappear. The matron always fears the worst, you know, said Nurse Faulkner, not without irony. Does she? The matron had never held out hope to Edwin, and he had unquestioningly accepted her opinion. It had not occurred to him that the matron of a hospital could be led astray by her instinctive unconscious appetite for gloom and disaster. The nurse nodded. Then you think he'll pull through? I'm pretty sure he will, but of course I've not seen the doctor. I mean, since the first night. I'm awfully glad. His brother came over from Darlington to see him yesterday evening, you know. Yes, I just missed him. The nurse gave a little bow as she moved up the road. Just going to the pillar box, she explained. Dreadful weather we're having. He left her, feeling that he had made a new acquaintance. She's in love with a parson, I bet, he said to himself, and he had to admit that she had charm when off duty. The news about Ingpen filled him with bright joy. Everything was going well. Hilda would soon be home. George's eyes were not seriously wrong. The awful funeral was over, and his friend was out of danger, marvellously restored to him. Then he thought of the will. He glanced about to see whether anybody of importance was observing him. There was nobody. The coaches were a hundred yards in front. He drew out the envelope containing the will, managed to extract the will from the envelope, and opened the document, not very easily because he was holding his umbrella. A small printed slip fluttered to the muddy pavement. He picked it up. It was a printed form of attestation clause seemingly cut from Whitaker's almanac. Signed by the testator, or testatrix, as the case may be, in the presence of us, both present at the same time, etc. She's got that right anyhow, he murmured. Then, walking along, he read the will of Auntie Hamps. It was quickly spotted with raindrops. At the house, the blinds were drawn up, and the women sedately cheerful. Maggie was actually teasing Bert about his new hat, and young Clara, active among the preparations for tea for six, was intensely and seriously proud of being included in the ceremonial party of adults. She did not suspect that the adults themselves had a novel sensation of being genuinely adult, and that the last representative of the older generation was gone, and that this common sensation drew them together rather wistfully. 
Oh, by the way, there's a telegram for you, said Maggie, as Minnie left the dining room after serving the last trayful of hot dishes and pots. Edwin took the telegram. It was from Hilda, to say that she and George would return on the morrow. What about the house being cleaned, and what about servants? cried Edwin, affecting in order to conceal his pleasure, an annoyance which he did not in the least feel. Oh, Mrs. Tams has been looking after the house. I shall go round and see her after tea. I've got one servant for Hilda. You never told me anything about it, said Edwin, who was struck by no means for the first time by the concealment which all the women practised. Didn't I? Maggie innocently murmured. And then Minnie can go and help if necessary until you're all settled again. Had we better have the gas lighted before we begin? And in the warm cosiness of the small, ugly dining-room, shortly to be profaned by auctioneers and furniture removers, amid the odours of tea and hot cakes, and surrounded by the family faces, intimate, beloved and disdained, Edwin had an exciting vision of the new life with Hilda, and the vision was shot through with sharp, flitting thoughts of the once gorgeous Auntie Hamps, forlorn in the cemetery, and already passing into oblivion. After tea, immediately the children had been sent home, he said, self-consciously, to Albert, I've got something for you, and offered the will. Maggie and Clara were upstairs. What is it? It's Auntie's will. Breeze had it. He gave it to me in the cemetery. It seems he only knew this morning Auntie was dead. I think that was why he came up. Well, I'm... Albert muttered. His hand trembled as he opened the paper. Auntie Hamps had made Edwin's sole executor, and had left all her property in trust for Clara's children. Evidently she had reasoned that Edwin and Maggie had all they needed, and that the children of such a father as Albert could only be effectually helped in one way, which way she had chosen. The will was seven years old, and the astounding thing was that she had drawn it herself, having probably copied some of the wording from some source unknown. It was a wise, if a rather ruthless will, and its provisions, like the manner of making it, were absolutely characteristic of the testatrix. Too mean to employ a lawyer, she had yet had a magnificent gesture of generosity towards that bembo brood which she adored in her grandiose way. And further, she had been clever enough not to invalidate this will by some negligent informality. It was as tight as if Julian Piddock himself had drawn it. And she managed to put Albert in a position highly exasperating, for he was both very pleased and very vexed. In slighting him, she had aggrandised his children. "'What of it?' he asked nervously. "'It's all right as so far as I'm concerned,' said Edwin, with a short laugh. And he was sincere, for he had no desire whatever to take a share of his aunt's modest wealth. He shrank from the trusteeship, but he knew that he could not avoid it, and he was getting accustomed to power and dominion. Albert would have to knuckle down to him, and Clara too. Maggie and Clara came back together into the room, noticeably sisterly. They perceived at once from the men's faces that they were in the presence of a historic event. "'I say, Clary,' Albert began. His voice quavered. End of Part 2 of Book 3, Chapter 19